For more presentations like this, visit www.xenos.org. So the context where we've been last week was this idea of loving others even when we're in the midst of suffering. The audience of, of Hebrews is being persecuted and the author toward the end of the book is getting super practical. And we talked last week about how Paul often at the end of a letter just starts sort of dumping all these imperatives, uh, you know, instructions uh, at the end. So it's like he's running out of space and he's just like, and remember this and don't forget this and this too and all of this. And while we don't know for sure that Paul wrote this letter, although like we talked last week, I think he did. Um, that's where we're at is we're in the super practical end of the book of Hebrews. But there are, I think, I think it's a great exercise when you get to a part of a letter like this. Is there something that connects these ideas, these thoughts? And what we saw at the beginning of Hebrews 13 is that the idea of loving others, that we know that this, this people are suffering, they're being persecuted, they're going through a very difficult time, and the author is saying, as you go through that, don't lose your love for one another. Don't lose your love for those outside the church, and don't lose your love for those inside the church, that, you know, when you go through difficult circumstances, it's very easy to just go inward and just start focusing on, okay, we're going to bunker in, we're going to batten down the hatches, it's going to be take care of me time, because I'm in a critical place. And instead, the backward wisdom of God says, you know, that's some of the most important time to keep an other's focus, because when we're suffering and we just sort of go inward and woe is me and focus on ourselves, it becomes lonely, we become disconnected, and we start Start thinking weird thoughts and having weird suspicions about other people and people just don't love me enough and people just don't serve me enough and if God were so good, why would he, you know, be allowing me this to happen to me and we just go down this road where we need to be connected. The Bible said, I mean, it's not good for man to be alone. We need to be connected to others and while it's wonderful to have others come in and help us and serve us when we're suffering... And we should, we should enjoy that, and we should be sure to do that for others when they're suffering. We should also be careful not to forget to express love to others in the midst of suffering. And so last week, we talked about that primarily within the context of loving those outside the church and loving those inside the church. But what about showing love to God? How does that work? You know, many of us have had experiences where God has done amazing things in our lives. We've been filled with gratitude for the way that he's sort of interrupted our lives and, and, and helped to change the direction of how we live and what we value and given us meaning and purpose. And sometimes when that happens, you, you honestly just say, God, I want to I love you. I want to show you my love. And that raises sort of an interesting question. What makes God feel loved? Sometimes we don't ever get that far, you know. But like, how does God receive love? What does that look like? And that gets a little interesting because, you know, for one thing, God's love for us is unconditional. So that means no matter how much we love him or how well we love him, he loves us just as much. That his love for us isn't dependent on our love of him, which is very important to understand. I remember as a, as a young Christian, and a, a new Christian, I was being discipled, mentored by a woman. Her name was Martha McCallum. And she was saying to me uh, that, you know, Ryan, what you, one of the things you need to understand is the joy of loving the Lord is he will never love you more than he loves you right now. She was like, you don't have to earn God's love God is not suspicious of you. You are in Christ, and he fully loves you to the fullest amount possible. And I remember being really bummed out by that. (laughs) Because I immediately was like, well, then how can you be the best? I want to earn God's love. I I want him to love me more than he loves other people. How do I get that? And she was just like, oh... 
we have so far to go, you know? And that, like, really bothered me. You know, now, you know, as I've grown and, and matured some, I can at least see, like, no, that's actually really, really good that God's love of us is not dependent on our actions, which means that we, we can't make God love us more. But we can learn to love God more. We can learn to express that love to him. And it's interesting, one way to think about it is, you know, different people feel loved in different ways. There's this book, it's the five love languages. A lot of people have read it. It's a very good book, it's interesting. It's based on biblical principles. You know, and the idea behind the five love languages is that, you know, there's like maybe, maybe a few different ways that people primarily feel love. And they're not necessarily the same. So, you know, if your love language is words of affirmation, meaning you feel loved when people say nice things to you, then the way that you tend to express love to others is saying nice things to them. But there are people who that's not their love language. Their love language is acts of service. They'll just do great things. They never tell you how they feel, but they serve you and and do things for you all the time. And so when those two people get together, one person is like, telling them how great they are, and that person doesn't feel loved, right? And that person is serving and doing lots of nice things for that person, and that person is like, that's great, but how do you feel? And it's like they're speaking two different languages, but they don't understand that some people express and receive love differently. And, you know, all it takes is about 30 seconds of marriage to figure out this is important, (laughs) right? That you're like, I, you know, what do you mean I don't love you? I changed the oil in your car, right? And so it raises the interesting question then, does God have a love language? What's God's love language? What are the things that, you know, he has told us at least that make him feel loved? And scripture provides that. And so it's super interesting. It's kind of exciting to think about it through those through that lens. We get to Hebrews 13, 15, and we see, through him then, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God that is the fruit of lips that give thanks to his name. Now, that is a very densely packed sentence there. And if we break it down a little bit, we see through him, that's talking about through Christ. And all, the reason that's there is because we have to understand that all of our ability to connect with God to relate to God is because of the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. And it's important that that be kept in context. Like, if you don't have a relationship with God through Jesus Christ, that's step one. Don't worry about expressing love to him or getting deeper in how to do that because the first thing is there's a controversy between us and God if we are not in Christ, And so the way to resolve that controversy is to invite Christ into our life, ask God to forgive our sins through Jesus Christ, and then we can get on to the other stuff that we're talking about. But that comes first, and so the author's very careful theologically to make sure that we understand that everything we're talking about here goes through Christ first. So through him, Because Christ makes it possible for us to be close to God, let us continually offer up. Let us, as a lifestyle, it's important that we understand that expressing love to God, the best way to express love to God is not through an hour-long service on a Sunday morning, and it's like, I expressed my love to God this week, and then go on with your life, but it's to live a life connected with God, that continually, as a lifestyle, expresses the joy and the gratitude of being connected to him. We like to compartmentalize everything. We like to take our lives and and cut it down into different things. I have my work life. I have my home life. I have my spiritual life. And all this is saying is, is like, let your spiritual life be a part of all of those lives. Invite God in to your daily life. And he says, through him, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. And those are two words, sacrifice and praise, that we don't use that often. 
You know, I don't know about you all, but when I think about sacrifice, I think of like, you know, human sacrifice or some kind of weird like animal sacrifice and praise. Praise is a word, but it's kind of a churchy word. You know, I don't come home and say, you know, praise thee, my spouse. You know, like she would slap me in the face. It's weird. So what are we talking about? Sacrifice of praise to God. This is Remember, this is a a Jewish background audience, right? And so they were familiar with the Old Testament sacrificial system. And so to them, that's where their mind goes with this word, is that God had set up a system through Moses where we could express our love to God. We could also demonstrate that we understand that we need reconciliation with God. God had said the penalty of sin is death, and, and the sacrificial system was set up to show that someone could die in our place for our sins. And it was a regular reminder to them of that. Not that sins were actually forgiven through that system, but it was a teaching tool so that they would know when Jesus came and died that he had been sacrificed so that we could be forgiven. A thank offering or a praise offering was part of the sacrificial system and we find it in Le- Leviticus 7.15 for one. It says, now as for the flesh of the sacrifice of his thanksgiving peace offerings, it should be eaten on the day of his offering and he shall not leave any of it until morning. So there was what was called a thank offering. And it would just be you would take a portion of meat and you would give it to God. And it's important that you understand it wasn't like because God's hungry and he needs your meat or he's going to die. Or because God likes meat And when you give it to him, he'll give you a blessing. It wasn't that. It was, this is a portion of my efforts, of my life work. If you were bringing in, you know, meat, it was because you were a farmer. You were a herdsman, right? And you were saying, I am am grateful to you for providing for me. And all of my life is a part of you. And this is a part of my life. So I want it to be a part of you. That was what a thank offering was. It was just like, love you and so grateful. And that was an appropriate expression for that time. It's not that dissimilar from what we see all the way back in Genesis chapter 4 with Cain and Abel. One was uh, a farmer and he brought produce and the other was a herdsman and he brought meat. And it says, you know, in regards to Abel, God appreciated and and, and connected with his offering because it was given in faith. Abel's heart was, I want to be connected to you, God. You are a good God, and I want, to, I want to share everything with you. And God was like, that is sweet. That's awesome. So the offering of praise or thanks to God is this idea of giving thanks to God. And then the, the, the last part here, the fruit of lips that give thanks to his name, just talking about offering up who you are in faith to God in an ongoing way as a lifestyle and praising God with your mouth and your lips, saying good things about who God is. And so we could do a little study, which we're going to do right now, which is just looking at some New Testament ways of saying thank you to God because that's something that matters to him. And it's really interesting. And so, number one, you can say thank you. That's a good way to say thanks to God, is just to literally turn to him and be like, I just want to recognize right now, this thing in my life is because of your generosity, your goodness, your love. And to recognize that is something that has meaning to him, which is surprising. It's it's not required. God will do things for us, whether we thank him or not, because his love for us is unconditional. But I can prove to you that he appreciates it when we do. Look at Luke 17, 15 through 18. Jesus has just healed some lepers from leprosy, an incurable disease at his time, a horrible disease. And it says one of them, when he saw that he had been healed, he turned back glorifying God with a loud voice, and he fell on his face at Jesus' feet, and he gave thanks to him, and he was a Samaritan. And Jesus answered and said, were there not ten cleansed? But the nine, where are they? Was no one found who returned to give glory to God except this foreigner? 
That's always struck me as, as very interesting. So he healed 10 people, and only one of them came back and said, thank you. And Jesus was like, that's kind of odd that only one person said thanks. He just notices. It's not like he's like, and as a result, those nine jerks are going to get their leprosy back, right? <laughs> They're still just as healed as they ever were, but he takes note of the fact that someone came back and said thanks. That's meaningful to him. He also says, not only did he say thanks, but he gave glory to God, which in that terms, it's just like telling other people, it's expressing the things that God has done. One way to say thank you to God is to tell other people about what God has done in your life. To say, you know, you know where I would be if I didn't have God in my life? You know what God has saved me from? You know what my marriage is like because God is involved and where it would be if he wasn't? Just to, to glorify God is to express the reality of God's impact in your life and to tell people about that. Let me tell you about how great God is, how amazing and wonderful the God of the Bible is and what he's done in my life. God's like, that's awesome. God feels loved when we do that. He's like, oh, Aren't you great? That's awesome. Because these people need to know that they can have a relationship with me too. You can live your life with God in an ongoing way. We talked about that from the passage in Hebrews, but a great one here in Romans 12.1. He says, therefore, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. What a deep verse in its own right. But he's just saying, the best life that you can live as a child of God is a life that's all out for God. And if you live your life, he uses that word again as you'll offer your body as a living and holy sacrifice. You know, he's not thinking, you know, throw yourself into a volcano. He's thinking, take the life that you would have lived solely and selfishly for your own purposes and instead live it and offer it up as a life for God's purposes. And in doing that, you will have a much better life for you. And it's appropriate to do this because God is worthy of such devotion. He is so good and wonderful that this is an appropriate response considering who he is and what he's done. This is something that we should do. And they call this worship. It's a much broader and more powerful definition of that term, worship. You know, what does it mean to worship? You know, for a lot of Christians, that means singing. And we're going to talk about that in a minute. And there's nothing wrong with singing, but when you define worship as singing, you block out everything else that is worship. And some of those things are far more important to God. What God wants as worship, if you say, I'm going to worship the Lord, what does that mean? It means I'm going to live my life for Him. And that could be through singing sometimes, through glorifying God other times, by telling people about Him, through praising God, all kinds of ways, through serving other people, living your life for God is the actual appropriate way of worshiping Him. Praise. There's that word again. In Greek, that word is aeinesis, which means to speak the, of the excellence of a person. To praise is to say, and to think about and talk about the attributes of God. God is so merciful. He's so patient. He's so kind. He's so just. I'm talking about not specifically what God does. I'm talking specifically about the wonders of who God is. And this is a totally appropriate way to pray and to show gratitude to God is by saying, God, I cannot believe how loving you are. And to meditate on the attributes of God 
and express back to him our gratitude for who he is. David, King David, the psalmist, was a master, was a master at this. Psalm 103 is really good because in the first part, he glorifies God. He talks about what God did. He brings God glory by explaining the great acts of God. Then he transitions into praising God, talking about the the attributes and the nature of who God is. Let's look at it. He says, bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget none of his benefits. Who pardons all your iniquities? Who heals all your diseases? Who redeems your life from the pit? Who crowns you with loving kindness and compassion? Who satisfies your years with good things so that your youth is renewed like the eagle? The Lord performs righteous deeds and judgments for all who are oppressed. He made known his ways to Moses, his acts to the sons of Israel. You see, this is how you glorify God. And then he praises God. The Lord is compassionate and gracious. He's slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness. He will not always strive with us, nor will he keep his anger forever. He has not dealt with us according to our sins, nor rewarded us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his loving kindness towards those who fear him. No wonder David was known as a man after God's own heart. You know, I think we are, most of us, me the most, are way too cynical to really talk this way to God. I do it because I know it's good for me, but I am very uncomfortable with it, to my shame. It's this, it just seems so positive And, you know, I worry that it, what, what, what it means and what will happen, what would happen to my heart if I never did this? What would happen to me? You know, it, it, it keeps me, I think, from completely going over the cliff in, you know, in cynicism. Like, this is something that I need to do, and I need to pray that God will, will expand my heart so that I will enjoy relating to him in this way. Because it's not for his benefit, it's for mine. I need this. So you can say thank you to God, you can give glory to God, you can live your life for God, you can praise God, you can sing, Xenos. (laughs) Singing, it turns out, is biblical and God likes it. Half of you are like, shh. Like a vampire with garlic. Ephesians 5, 19 through 20. Speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Singing and making melody with your heart to the Lord. Always giving thanks for all things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, even the Father. Singing praises. Singing glorifies God. It's good to do together. And it's part of his love language. It's a way of loving him that he says, I like that. Hmm. Singing God's praises pleases God. It lifts our spirits, most of us. It's biblical. It's something we're supposed to do. And it should not be taken lightly. I want to I explain to you, I think this is important, if you are really hard-hearted about this, I understand why. I was not raised in the church. I did not grow up doing this. I feel that many times that I see this and versions of this, that it is not very good and I don't like it very much, but that doesn't mean that I'm not missing out on something if I don't open my heart to it. It's something that's real, it's in Scripture, and it's a way of connecting to God. And I think it can really help put things in perspective. One thing, if you ever get into this a little bit, is you'll see that when you're praising God in this way, a lot of times you walk away from it changed. Not permanently, but just it helps orient 
into you into a more spiritual way of being for a while. You're, you're edified and you're built up and you're more connected with the idea that this is a spiritual world. Now, the question everyone is asking all the time is, why don't we sing here? Isn't that what Christians are supposed to do on Sunday morning is go to a worship service and sing praises to God? And, you know, that's a good question. Uh, the answers to this are several. One is, is singing can be a barrier to people who don't believe in God feeling welcome. And some of you believe that's a cop-out. I know that. But it is actually one of the top reasons why we wrestle with this as a church. It's because we, as a, as a church, see our identity, who we are. If you want to say, who is Xenos Christian Fellowship and what are they called to do? The answer to that question is to reach people who hate church. It's, it's, it's at the very center of what we believe. We believe there are churches all over the city and we're all called to make disciples of all nations. We're all called to glorify God. We're all called to service and sacrifice. But there are different groups that I think have different parts of the mission. And I think some groups really feel called to helping people who were raised in a Christian environment and who have walked away to helping them reconnect with their Christianity and their faith. And if that's who you are, that is a worthy call. That is something and a work that needs to be done. And there are choices that you will make in order to connect with those people and that are good choices for you to make. But our sense of who we are and why we're here is not to exclude those people, but to build our approach so that it is most attractive to people who are like, never been to church, never imagined why I would go, and frankly, never met a Christian that I liked before, such as were some of you. I know that was me. And I'm not saying if we ever sang that that would ruin that, but it does for many people. What's the point of coming and having people sing to a God they don't believe in and they don't know, to words and music they don't understand? It can be something that becomes a barrier. So we don't do it here at this large meeting. This is the primary reason why. Another reason, it's less of a good reason, but it's a reason is the American church overall has overemphasized singing. Xenos at its heart is sort of a reaction against the institutional church. They made singing too important, so we made it too unimportant. And it started 50 years ago, and it's deeply entrenched in who we are. We have a battle to fight here. We have something we should think about. Is that a biblical position? That singing is not important. That doesn't mean we should bring it in here. It doesn't mean we should do it here. But it doesn't mean to, to say, you know, that's lame, that's stupid, that's bad. God does not agree with that. He thinks the opposite of that. And so, yes, there could be a danger of, you know, getting too into it and overemphasizing it, but come on, is that likely to happen here? Yes, be concerned. Don't let it become this overshadowing thing, but don't go the other direction. Here's another reason we don't do it at our large meetings. We're bad at it. That's not to say we don't have some amazing musicians in this church. We do. It's mostly to say, frankly, all white people are bad at it. <laughs> Remember when Bishop Clark was here? Uh, he, he's a pastor down at First Church, African-American, incredible preacher. He called us the frozen chosen. <laughs> and it's so true. I mean, I did get my first amen last week. But other than that... White people are terrible at celebrating publicly the glory of who God is. 
And I mean, even there are people that are really musical, but you know, the songs that we sing, the things that we're, they're, they're pretty dry. They're pretty droning. We're not good at it. And I don't think if we tried to be good at it, it I don't know what that, how people would read that in our culture. You know, because I mean, you should be just really joyous. Like, I think the African-American church really has a, an incredible picture of, of what is right and biblical in praising God. And we are far from that. And so, you know, there's a little bit of a chicken in the egg. We're bad at it because we don't do it. And we don't do it because we're bad at it. And we've been struggling for that with that for 50 years. I think another reason we don't sing at our large meetings is because we're overly suspicious of emotion. Organizationally, you know, we all have sort of different leanings, right? And, you know, we, it's very good. It's very appropriate to be suspicious of emotion because often emotion is pitted against truth, right? And truth is trustworthy. Truth is good. Truth is reliable. When you believe in true things, that is a much better guide than your emotions. But if Xenos were on a spectrum of, you know, overly intellectual versus overly emotional, we are safely on this side of the error, right? We're not really in danger of becoming overly emotional right now. That, that could change one day, right? But that's, I think, part of why this is an emotional way of connecting to God. And there's a lot of us that are like, that's experiential, not intellectual, therefore it scares me, which is okay, but it's not an excuse. It's good to be fearful of your flesh, but it is not okay to throw something out that God says is good. Just a thought. So some of you are like, okay, so why don't we fix it? Let's fix it. And my answer to that is twofold. One is, it's not a high priority because it's not a high priority in Scripture. Like if there were like four, three, four things I could fix about Xenos right now, this would not be one of them. Because I don't see in Scripture that it is the, the highest priority thing that we can do. I would like to fix it. I would like to be at a point where I'm like, we, don't, we have so few problems and things that we need to fix that this is one of them. And so it's not on my radar simply because it's not prioritized that way. I will stand up here and I will tell you guys, I think we've got this wrong. And it does concern me. The other thing I would say is we have made some attempts at this. We have every other week in the cafe over there we have a meeting where people sing. They are forbidden from calling it worship for the reasons I just told you. It's called our singing meeting. And it's not because it's any less about praising God. It's because worship is not just singing. It's every other week and it's very poorly attended. It's uh, 9 a.m. It's an hour before CT starts. You could go and you can sing and it ends 15 minutes before it begins so it kind of eliminates that whole newer people or non-Christians being forced to sing and creates an opportunity for us to come together and praise the Lord. It's just not well utilized. It's just not that well attended. The people who run it do an awesome job and really care and are really invested in it. Yeah. I'm really glad they're doing it. I... Wish we'd take more advantage of it. I really do. The concern here, I think, is that we're in danger of having an unbiblical view, especially when I talk to some people in student ministry, but others as well. I hear this like, oh, I hope we never sing. That's so blah, yeah. And you're like, that's not what the word of God says. And let's, let's keep a biblical perspective on this. The concern that I have is that some of us really are missing out on something of value that, that we need. And that would be good for us. And that we don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. What's the solution? The solution, in my opinion, is not to start doing it here. It's to start singing and to attending singing before CT. It's there. And if people use it, it'll become better and better and, uh, and greater. 
and we can put more time and energy into figuring out how to do it better when we're convinced that, you know, we've got people on board with doing it together. Sing. One more, being generous to others in need is another way of saying thanks to God. Hebrews 13, 16. So we got through one verse there. That was Hebrews 13, 15. We're going to be here for some time. (laughs) I'm just kidding. He says, do not neglect doing good and sharing, for with such sacrifices God is pleased. God feels loved. God's love language is serve my children. And that's not hard to imagine. If you're a parent and somebody does something really nice for your kids, doesn't that person, don't you feel loved by that person? If somebody really goes out of their way, if your kid is in need and hurt and somebody picked them up and made sure that they were taken care of, wouldn't you just feel so loved by that person? Even if they were a stranger, you would just be like, thank God for that. God says, that's how I feel about all of you and that's how I feel when you serve and love one another. 17, maybe for me, one of the verses I have disliked the most in all of Scripture (laughs) says, obey your leaders and submit to them, for they keep watch over your souls as those who give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with grief, for this would be unprofitable for you. And so uh, as a new believer, I remember reading this and being like, obey? Really? Obey? And I remember just really having a problem with this. Like, you know, humans are fallen. They're broken. They are untrustworthy. They abuse their power. History certainly shows us that human leadership uses that, especially within the church, to get what they want and to control people God, you really want us to obey human leadership? Yeah, that is what that's saying. (laughs) But obey, you know, it doesn't mean blind obedience. That's the thing that's important that we understand. God is the leader of the church. And he has given us an incredible outline of guidance and principles through Scripture. And so as the ultimate leader, anyone who's a quote-unquote leader who contradicts the word of God should not be followed because God is the leader of the church. Christ is the head of the church. And so by having a Bible and getting to know it and studying it, you are learning when it is good to follow human leadership and when it is bad to follow human leadership. The Bible is the difference in those things. What this is saying is, is that as long as our leaders are leading from God's values, we should follow them and we should give them the benefit of the doubt. Meaning that if you don't like the direction they're going, but it's not an immoral direction, it's just not according to your preference, then give them the benefit of the doubt and go with it. Even if it's like makes you uncomfortable and you don't really like it very much and you don't think it's going to work or it's a good direction, give them the benefit of the doubt. It's not a moral issue. A good way, a good framework for this would be this. If they violate scripture, do not follow them, period. If it violates your conscience, do not follow them. Say, listen, I know I can't find a Bible verse that says, you know, that shows this is wrong, but I really feel strongly that this is wrong for me to do. Maybe it's okay for other people, but as far as like me before the Lord, I, I do not think I can do this. Don't do it. Other than that, help your leaders. Get behind them. No matter how silly you think it is, or unhelpful, or even unwise, if it doesn't violate Scripture and violate your conscience, get behind it and support them. That's what obeying your leaders means in this context. Now, as a leader, I don't mind the first part so much anymore. (laughs) But this part really bothers me and haunts me to this day. For they will keep watch over your souls as those who will give an account. So as a leader in the church, am I going to stand before God one day and he's going to say, so... Tell me about Bill. 
and how you loved him. And you know, you could definitely go overboard with this. You can go into a legalistic place because we're all as children of God, as people who are covered by the blood of Jesus Christ, we're all going to hear, well done, good and faithful servant. We are all going to be accepted. But being accepted doesn't mean that we're not accountable. That God is going to say, did you love my people as much as possible? And you know, you think about that as a leader and you're like, no. I could always have done better, you know? Like, in no case can I say in any situation that I've loved somebody to the fullest extent possible because I am a broken person who doesn't love anybody the way that I should. But that's not really the question. The question is gonna be, did you do your best? Did you take what you had and try to do what was best for others? and loving them, and when you make decisions that affect other people, are you thinking about, I am accountable to God for the decisions that I make and for the way that I treat people as a leader? And that that is something that leaders need to be conscious of, not afraid of, not you know, in fear. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, but can, I, can my conscience bear what it is that I'm about to do? Whether that thing is, you know, a thing that might be unpopular or whether that thing is uh, doing something I know that I should do and I'm not going to, I'm going to stand before God. And he's going like, to be like, why didn't you do that? And I was going to be like, because I was afraid of people not liking me. And he's going to be like, that's not a very good reason. And I'm going to be like, yeah. Thanks for dying for my sins. <laughs> but I think it's, it, should weigh, it should weigh into our thinking a lot, you know? It's just as important that people follow their leaders as, is, as it is that their leaders recognize that they are accountable before God. How is this a way of giving love to God, though? Is this connected in some way or is this just, you know, way off just like, hey, love one another, love God. Now, by the way, obey your leaders. I think it is very connected and I think it's not hard to see. Look at John 21, 17. Jesus is talking to Peter and he says to Peter a third time after Peter had betrayed him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he had said to him the third time, do you love me? And Peter said to him, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. And Jesus said to him, tend my sheep. That leading is a way of expressing love to God, an important way of expressing love. He asked Peter three times, do you love me? And Peter said, you know that I do. And he said, then shepherd my sheep. Take care of my people. If you love me, love them and lead them is an important way of expressing our love to God. Shepherding his sheep. And, you know, a lot of us do that. And there's a lot of opportunities for that in this church. There are a lot of leaders. There are a lot of home church leaders. There's a lot of deacons and servant team members. There's a lot of ministry team leaders. There's people all over the place in the hundreds that are taking on a measure of responsibility for serving others, for loving others, and for shepherding God's sheep. There's a couple dozen leading our children right now in Oasis. There's, you know, even more running the sound booth and the snack bar and grilling and doing all these things. They're taking on the responsibility of caring for other people. And that is leadership, according to Scripture, is taking some measure of responsibility. And that that is a way that we can show and express our love for God if you care about God, then you should care about his people and you should lead his people in the things that you are gifted at, especially, which can take on all kinds of different ways and, and approaches. It's, you know, in, in this church, we tend to think leader means home church leader, which is a great way to lead. But there's a lot more than that too. Are you willing to step up and serve 
and lead and take responsibility for others. And I think it's very important that we understand because this verse, Hebrews 13, 17, is one that I use. I spend a lot of time coaching leaders and talking to leaders. And the thing that I'm more than, than anything else trying to drive home with leaders is leaders are not responsible for what people do. If you're leading, you are not responsible for the mistakes that your people make. And people get into that mindset and they think, well, if this person does that, it'll reflect poorly on me. So they're like, I have to stop them. And it's like, no. We are grown people. We're adults. We are not responsible for other people's actions. You may want to stop that person because you love them and you don't want to see them hurt themselves or others, but you cannot and are not responsible for the bad decisions that they make. What leaders are responsible for is what people know. A leader makes sure that the people that they are watching over are making informed decisions. This thing that you're doing is ruining your life. I cannot continue to watch you be an alcoholic without telling you this is serious and it's going to destroy you, your life, and your family. That's what a leader does. A leader doesn't tell somebody, you know, I'm going to take all your liquor away and I'm going to lock you in a room until you're sober. Not that anyone has ever done that that I'm aware of. But... That is so important that we understand. And so, you know, we need to make sure that when we see people doing good things, we let them know they're doing good things. And when we see them doing destructive things, we let them know they're doing destructive things. And when we can see that they are self-deceived about some choice that they're making, it is our job to try to help them see the truth. And then it is our job to pray. And that's what a leader does. That's what a leader should do. And by the way, leading is a great way to grow in dependence on God. If you look at some of the great leaders from Scripture, Abraham, Moses, David, they were close to God. Abraham spoke to God as a man speaks to his friend. Moses spoke to God uh, face to face. David was a man after God's own heart. They were all leaders, which meant they were taking on the responsibility of God's people, and they were in a position that was very difficult, that put them in a position of hardship, and they had to depend more and more on God in order to survive and succeed with what God was asking them to do, which created intimacy. Not that God loved them more because of their willingness to do it, but that they became closer to God because they recognized more their need for him. And he says, let them do this leading with joy and not with grief, for this would be unprofitable for you. Having bummed out leaders, burdened, grieving leaders who feel like you all are hurting a bunch of cats is not good for you. That is damaging for your home church or whatever it is that you're a part of. If you're, you know, giving your leader a hard time and they're following the Bible and they are not violating your conscience, but you are always complaining and you are never helping and you are dragging them down, that is bad for you because your leaders will be grieved and heavy laden and they need to be supported and backed up and loved. Leadership, leaders should, the joys of leadership should outweigh the griefs. Being a leader should be a joyful thing. And I know that some of you here believe exactly that. You are leaders and you love being a leader. You love serving God's people. It's hard and it has some downsides. Some of you are leaders here and you're like, boy, was that a mistake? How do I get off this ship? How do I get my honorable discharge from this core? <laughs> and some of you are not leaders, but you're looking at your leaders and you're saying, not me, no way. I don't want that. 
And it, the Bible says it's good to aspire to be a leader because aspiring to be a leader in the biblical sense is to aspire to be a servant. To aspire to care more and take responsibility for others. And let me suggest to you, if you pity your leaders, if you look at them and you're like, I would never want that job and there is no way if asked I would ever do that. If that's what leadership looks like in your group, what does that say about you in your group? I'm going to let that sit for a second because I think it's really important. (laughs) If you pity your leaders, what does that say about you and your group? It says that you're not getting behind them and you're not serving and grabbing an oar and pitching in or that at least your group together isn't doing that. And that is unbiblical. That is something that we should not have You know, our leaders should have the support of the people around them because what we are doing matters in the face of eternity. Don't follow your leaders if they are are violating Scripture. Do not follow your leaders if they're asking you to violate your conscience. But other than that, grab an oar and pray. If you think they're headed in the wrong way, pray that they will see it. Talk to them about it. Let them know that you disagree, but that you are going to be there to support what it is that you're doing nonetheless. And ask them to get more counsel because you see things that they're doing that seem foolish and wrong. There's nothing wrong with dissent. There's nothing wrong with saying I disagree. But there is something very wrong with being a naysayer, a negative breaker down of what people are trying to accomplish when you yourself are not willing to take any responsibility for what's going on. And that's important that we think about it in those terms. We'll close our study in Hebrews with this. This is like the summation where they just, you know, pull everything together. Now the God of peace who brought, who brought up from the dead the great shepherd of the sheep through the blood of the eternal covenant, even Jesus our Lord, Equip you in every good thing to do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. There you have the book of Hebrews. God, uh, I love these guys, and we love you, and we love this church. And uh, I hope, if anything, that we come away with a conviction that we could be more conscious about how to express our love to you in fruitful ways. And I just pray, God, that we can be a church that's deeply in love with you and deeply expressive of the gratitude that we have for the greatness of who you are. Amen. This study was recorded at Xenos Christian Fellowship and is copyrighted. You may freely copy and distribute it as long as you keep it intact and do not sell it.